0: Welcome to L'Arte de l'Armé, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Ken Harding, owner and proprietor of St. Louis School of Arms in St. Louis, Missouri. Ken has been practicing martial arts for almost 40 years and has been practicing Western martial arts for over a decade, exclusively teaching the Bolognese system. Ken... Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you have an amazingly extensive martial arts background. Um, tell me a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in the Bolognese system. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's amazing. Um,
1: it's just something I, I begun and never stopped. Uh, I didn't even start very young. I wasn't I wasn't a kid when I got involved. I was right out of high school. I graduated class three, so right around 84, probably, 84, 85, um, I got involved with Japanese martial arts, um, heavily, um, heavy emphasis on weapons, in addition to grappling and and open hand, Um, and it's just something I always wanted to get into, but never got involved in when I was a kid, Um, kind of uh, took it up on myself to to get involved in it and just kept up at it, Um, enjoyed it. And even when my own teacher had to leave town after a few years, I didn't wanna stop. So I out of necessity became a teacher and created my own training partners. I recruited anybody I could. I taught in my basement in in my backyard. And within a few years, I had a small following of maybe uh, 10 or a dozen people. And so by about the time, um, it was 1991, when I opened an actual commercial brick and mortar martial arts school, I was 26 um, and it was quite a leap diving right into that. And um, a lot of responsibility to take up Uh, that was right the the same exact same time my first son was born and i taught full-time and kept that up for 15 straight years um
0: that's that's pretty incredible i mean uh just thinking of uh from perspective of um being involved in and overall just the running of a school um how are I, i 15 years is a long time. And even running now with the St. Louis School of Arms, um, you've, I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, how were you able to do that? Well, I had, uh, it wasn't
1: a big affair. I mean, well, I, I guess it kind of depends on how you did it. I wanted to do with honesty. I never used, it didn't seem like a big commercial endeavor. I didn't have the contracts and all that high pressure stuff. I figured if people liked what they were doing, they would come back so I didn't uh, tie people down into it. I think I got up to around 90 students or so. Um, and I taught a lot of private lessons. If you're wanting to know how do you keep this thing running? How do you make a living off of it? You have to teach a lot. You have to teach a lot of private lessons. And uh, I taught probably three a day, hour long private lessons throughout the day, Monday through Friday. And uh, got, I've stayed pretty booked for the majority of that 15 years. So my, uh, I, and I taught out of a warehouse space which was wonderfully low overhead. So just your basic concrete walls, high ceiling, garage door type of warehouse space. Um, and so the overhead low, my expenses were low. I was able to for 15 years um, and the economy was in such a place where it permitted something like that. People had disposable income in the nineties. Um, and it was a, it was a, as they say, it's a good gig if you can get it and I enjoyed it and, um, things did change, um, around 2000, around the time of the, nine uh, 11, you know, nine 11, the economy took a downturn. Things became kind of scary. People became a little more nervous. People were a little more cautious about their disposable income. And so um, I started to look into, well, I might need to do something else or supplement this or make a change. Um, So when you're, you know, when you're doing a martial arts school yourself and you've got to get your own health insurance for your family, you know, these, these things take, take precedence. And so around about the uh, middle of, uh, it was around, around 2004, 2005, um, I started looking into going back to school. So while I was teaching, I went to college and I got a uh, bachelor's in network engineering. So um, in 2006, I stepped away and handed off my operations to my students. And then I got into the the IT field and did that for a good uh, decade, more than a decade, 12, 11 or 12 years. I still taught though. I never quit martial arts, no matter what else I was doing, I always taught. I had people who would come back to me and say, can you teach us? Something. Can you, can you give us a uh, small lessons? We're getting a little group together. We have two or three or four guys. Please come and teach us. Here's, we even will get you a place. And so that's how I actually wound up finding the place I'm in now is previous students recommended it. And I would just um, on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, teach a class pretty steadily throughout the years when I was in the IT field. Um, but what happened that was significant was around 2010 or so, I heard of this thing called HEMA. Now, it's what's important to know is that, especially in the 80s, in the 90s, in the Japanese realm of martial arts, in the Asian circles, uh, we didn't think much highly of the European style. Basically, we thought it was a, a myth joke, basically non-existent. If you were to ask us, what did the Europeans do with a sword? Well, I'd probably say they bludgeoned you with it. It was uh, not even a sharp sword. You know, they had to lower people in, arm, in armor what cranes onto their horses. It was, of course, all hearsay, misinformation, things gotten from movies. And well, in the, in the absence of correct information, in the vacuum of correct information, anything will do. And so, yeah, there was this attitude among the uh pictures with a with a Japanese katana that of course this is the superior sword and, and nothing else is worth talking about or worth doing but when I heard that well there really was this movement to reconstruct the forgotten fighting systems of Europe and they, based on real sources it's based on their the actual writings of the people who did it at the time. Now, that was very interesting to me. Uh, I was fascinated by that. It was, um, I thought that was marvelous. And it was, I felt it was something I wanted to get involved with. Um, Now, having done what I had done for quite a number of years, um, I didn't feel like I had gone as far as I could go. I didn't feel like I had mastered everything. But I didn't feel I was making as much of a contribution anymore as I could be, and I, I really saw this this new thing as something that I could make a contribution to. Um, mm. uh, number one, it was interesting to me, and number number I could help.
0: Um, I thought I could be of use. It's uncharted territory. Yeah, and so before you were doing uh, jojutsu uh, I was doing, um, well. Uh, Jujutsu, bojutsu, jojutsu,
1: um, really um, jujutsu, uh, uh, in, the, in the realm of um, Budo, um, really all things to do with weapons, quite a, quite a range, spears, naginata, um, of course, swords of various lengths, one-handed, small sword, long sword, tanto, the knife. Um, and so I was used to... Um, doing a lot of different weapons at a, at a wide arsenal. And uh, so it wasn't um, difficult for me to juggle, not literally, but figuratively juggle. Yeah. And so that intrigued me too, because I, I, as I picked up the fact that that also was the case in HEMA, it wasn't simply a matter of um, just a sword, but There was uh, an opportunity to to, to involve yourself in a variety of weapons. That was interesting to to me. Um, Now, um, initially, I did sort of dabble or explore various options. I mean, the Hema Hema realm is quite vast. So I didn't know exactly where I would land. So I looked into German, uh, the longsword. I... I looked at rapier um, just to sort of sample and to sort of find my my niche. Now, I came upon people doing bolognese, and this would have been around um, 2013, 2014, I don't know, somewhere in there. And I liked the look of it. Number one, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was artistic. Um, It caught my eye right away as it being elegant. And when I looked further into it, I realized, well, unlike some of the other varieties of HEMA, there's a lot of material. There are plays. It's not just a small core set of basic master cuts or or techniques. It was actually plays. And not just a few of them. It was hundreds of them. This, This vast catalog of historical material, that appealed to me. Um, And it may have something to do with a similarity to the Japanese structure of teaching through through kata, structured play. Um, That method of transmission I find appealing. So I got involved with with the Bolognese methodology. Um, I located who I thought um, sort of matched my own thoughts, my own movement, uh, theory, my own, um, um, who, who'd seem most like me. And, uh, I noticed up in Chicago, they had the Chicago swordplay guild and Robert Rutherford does a marvelous job with the Bolognese method. And I contacted Greg Mele and I went up there and, um, went to one of their workshops, invited them down a few times, uh, in the next couple of years to St. Louis and had them do workshops to sort of put down the initial bricks. Um, and then uh, after that, I um, just took off. And uh, my base began to grow. And so it was around, let's say, uh, about three years ago, I was able to make the choice can I return to doing this full time again? And I was able to, and I made that, I made that leap again uh, into becoming a full-time teacher.
0: Yeah, that's that's where I am, that's where I am today. And you've, you're, you're prodigious. I mean, you've produced so much material. Um, A lot of times when I encounter new students of the Bolognese system, um, you know, five or six years ago, the person who they would always point to would be oka and now the person that i hear the most the person whose name i hear the most is your name i mean most of the people mm-hmm. that i encounter who's coming you know come in now they've encountered you on youtube um or the various other channels that you um distribute through like venmo or, or not venmo uh what is it uh, uh i can't remember the name of that You're one you know, streaming you know. app Vimeo, that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and of course, your Patreon channel. Um, well,
1: and that really only came about because of COVID. Um, yeah. You know, I was forced to shut down for six weeks due to a stay-at-home order here in St. Louis. And a few people just had to step back and stay home and didn't feel like coming back in even when we reopened. So there was an impact COVID on the school. And uh, being bearing in mind that this is my job, this is my profession, yeah, had to do something to supplement that. So really, that was a, a response to COVID. I need to supplement the physical school with basically what is a virtual school. So I'm I'm gratified to hear that, and I hope I deserve uh, I hope I deserve that from from these people. I'm trying to do my best uh, in presenting the material as I as I see it as you know, is my best honest attempt.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know I I can com- I think you are. I, I really do. I think, um, you know, as a as a patron of the art, as somebody that, you know, it sort of stands as a pillar that a lot of people build their foundation off of. Um, you know, I think you do a fantastic job. And I think that's the general consensus that I've gotten from a lot of the community. Um, you know, obviously, uh the way that people interpret texts and when they come up with their own interpretations, which is always great, you know, it's always great to see different ideas, but, um, you know, whether they agree or disagree with your interpretations, there's still the idea that you're producing that and, you know, starting those discussions and encouraging people to have those discussions, which I think is yeah. incredibly valuable. Sure.
1: Yeah, the way that I look at things now is definitely not the way I looked at things six, seven, eight years ago. It's just not the, not the case. Yeah. Um, the first time I cracked open a book, well, I had a... I took a figuratively. Um, but now, you know, I am very systematized. I basically have my... I have my interpretations, and, and they're still subject to change. Everything is still a working model. But um, now a lot more has to take place for me to, to go through that process of change, because I, I do put a lot of time into it. And when I you have to understand that I, I will approach a, an interpretation and I will work through it, first of all, just in my own head and on paper, but then I'll work through it with a small group of individuals. I'll, I'll then work through that with a large class. And for me, creating, creating an inter- interpretation isn't something that I throw together in 15 minutes or half an hour. For me, it's really a process that, that takes, at minimum, a few weeks to uh, maybe a month longer um, and really is an open-ended process. I've got some, some examples where I'm still working on interpretations after six, seven years. and I'm still finding myself changing. And what makes them, of course, the most impact is, well, now that I've read all the works of all the, ma- all the masters, read them, but done practically all of them physically, well, that makes the biggest difference. Going back yeah. after years of, well, now that I've done you know, all of the, the one-handed, the sword and buckler, the two-handed, the sword and targa, the bertella and the dagger and the pole arms and, and all of these things, some degree that forced me to rethink how I perceived these things years earlier.
0: Yeah, you kind of get an idea of the complete system versus you know, just the individual technique. Sometimes you don't quite see the forest through the trees when you're just looking at, you know, when you're, you've got a tree right in your face and it's just the technique that you're working on, but when you can actually understand the complexity of the entire system, especially like you said, since you've read all of the books of all the masters, and I mean, it's it's obvious through, you know, the amount of material that you've put out that you've been through, you know, yeah. most of them. And, and you have interpretations available for people to look at for almost all the different masters, um, yeah. but you you get that that feeling of this is the Bolognese system. You know, this is this is how you approach the fight and this is how you you proceed with these techniques. And this is you can find similarities between the different authors and stuff like that, um, even though they have their specific styles. Yeah.
1: Well, I think I'm fortunate. Um, I'm fortunate in the fact of my situation. I'm able to put 20 or 30 hours a week into doing this. And I just want to on, on that benefit as much as I'm able to. And um, yeah, on, on that note, uh, I would say that I, as I tell people, if you like the one-handed sword, that's great. But you can't learn the one-handed sword really, fully by studying just the one-handed sword. Huh. You're not going to get really the context of their their full message because they didn't say everything that they knew when they were talking about the one-handed sword
0: yeah I, so you know a great point because you know you you take a look at moronzo right i mean moronzo's best advice for how he approaches the fight is in book three of the two handed sword he he scattered i mean he's he's morazzo right so he just scatters his information all across his text but if he you does. it like if you really want to find his best information on on tactical information right like uh, Manchilino and the Anonymous give us phenomenal introductions that lay out their system but Morazzo mm-hmm. just stuffs it in the back of book three <laughs> for some reason yeah,
1: yeah. He, he doesn't quite care uh, how he gets it to you or that you notice it or that you pick up on it. Um, you know as he states he's writing for son um, or or people to refresh their memories uh, and he says you're not going to get this unless you've trained with me in person Mm -hmm. yeah an interesting thing the same thing my my japanese teacher told me you know 25 years ago if you don't train with me in person you're not going to get this stuff and there's a a great deal to be said about that unfortunately we don't have him we don't have meroso to train with and we have to do our best yeah right now currently where i'm going through the um sword and targa material and some of the best nuggets I've seen yet. I've pulled out of the Targa. Um, we are putting out some of the uh, information on video for targa now, even on YouTube, even on, even for free. Um, I don't. It, it doesn't bother me to to give away things. Well, this Targa material I've been working on now for well, this is my my second pass at it. Meaning, I've gone through uh, everything of Morozzo's Targa material. He has two of Salty gone through it all um, over the past, say, four months, and now I'm completing a second cycle of it, and in the second cycle is when I'm recording it, and in addition to that, too, at at the same time, going through Anonymous' target material, too, because to me, that's very important to see the overlap of those two masters and seeing where I can fill in the gaps, because just as I said, if you wanted to learn the one-handed sword, you can't just study the one-handed sword i I feel the same way about the masters themselves if you want to study morozzo that's great but you can't learn everything that morozzo said by only reading morozzo you have to read everybody else
0: to sort of build on that point a little bit right like his uh the third book of the sword and small buckler is where he gives his strata plays and he even introduces it as saying like this is good with single-edged weapons so or i mean single Right. Single-handed edged weapons um, is is what he says. So, you know, it's it's like you have this. If you don't look at the full breadth of the material, um, you're always going to miss out on certain things. And you know, in yeah. in the strata material, he says this is the core of the art. Like, if you don't understand yes. this, then you might as well not even you know attempt to engage. That's where
1: the stuff. real fighting happens. Yes.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: if you and if you think, well, I just want to do the one-handed sword. I want to do a buckler. Well, then you're winding up over that material doing yourself a great disservice that would be my advice to anyone really um more than anything is don't neglect parts of the system that you find uninteresting
0: yeah that's missing the material yeah that's really great advice so um because you, you do have this like output of, of all these different plays from all these different masters. you read all the books. Um, who's your favorite of all the four uh, authors?
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to answer that. But first I, have to say I hate that question. I know. <laughs> I hate that question because, um, because they all matter to me. They all help create this vision, this understanding that I have of them. Um, and, and I'm also, I'm grateful to have as many as we do have. And I would hate to lose even one of them. I think losing any one of them would be a tremendous loss And my most honest answer is and and don't have a favorite and I know that sounds like hurting the question but Morozzo, as we said the breadth and the scope of his work he's, some people don't consider him eloquent. he may be a bit a bit um, a bit crude at times with his his verbiage, but I think he's very detailed, he never spares in detail, and I think for that uh, we should be grateful, but the depth of his treatment and the, the breadth of his treatment, how many different weapons he doesn't really, um, you know, there's nothing that he doesn't seem to touch in his, uh, in his material and mention, you know, he's to me critically important for the way in which he represents the core theory. He, he does have very eloquent passages, but he can be a bit sparse. He can be a bit thin. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes he just says, uh, you know, step forward and do this. And if he does that, you you do this. I mean, he's very sparse with his details. So he, for me, was probably the hardest to work through in the beginning. Um, because of that fact, it took me a while to really understand his method of speech, his language, and um, the way to read him, it wasn't apparently, uh, immediately apparent. Yeah. Delagokie's De wonderful his structure, his organization, really just want to know how to fence with a Bolognese one-handed sword, really just look at Delagokie. His structure um, is, is well presented Exhaustive, complete. Um, if that's your interest, that's a great place to be. Um, Anonimo, I view as really Anonimo fills in a lot of little gaps for me. I love his 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 work. He's a bit idiosyncratic in a way, and, and some of his things seem a little more like he's he's uh, doing things of his own. He's he's, he's He's expressing himself. It's like to say, this is my art. This is this is here's things I do. Cause they don't some of his things don't really line up with right. others do. And he's got his for structurally, <laughs> you know, he's um, he'll he'll be doing one set of material and right in the middle of it, he'll just pluck something else. And then yeah. get back to where he was. Um, it seems to me the, and like for example, his Material of two-handed sword. It seems like stuff was all handwritten, and he had uh, his material and his two-handed material. Basically, some of that maybe fell out of the binder and got lost. You know, it's like he meant he meant to do that, but you know, it just didn't it didn't survive till our day. Um, possibly, it's uh, um, his work seems seems unstructured, but still, um, despite that incredibly valuable.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, it, I mean it, it seems like when you have 400 some odd plays with a single handed sword that you are definitely <laughs> applying your own yeah. sort of uh, like creative insight into the system.
1: I agree. Yeah. He was uh, just doing basically a dump of his mind. Yeah. On the paper. Um, um, and it, or, it strikes me as a bit of a collector of techniques as well. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if he, he was also gathering information from whatever source he could, um, I get that
0: feeling. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I, I kind of get the same thing. I mean, it, you know we don't really have a definitive date for the anonymous Bolognese. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes when you read it, it almost feels like you're reading a text that's written later. I know that right now it's attributed to being written sometime in the early 1500s, like 1510 or 16 or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but sometimes with some of the actions, um, you know, yeah. especially the sort of point forward nature, um, you just kind of get the feeling that there's a lot of sort of later rain esque time type, type of stuff. Like it's almost like he's responding to a very point forward system.
1: Yes. Uh, he does seem to foreshadow what's coming. So I, I, it seems to me that he falls, uh, after Morozzo and um, possibly before Delagocchier, certainly published uh, before Delagocchier did. Um, but again, I've got no, there's, again, there's no hard evidence of, of when, he, when he wrote what he wrote. His, his uh, use of uh, pole arms is interesting, and armor is interesting
0: yeah it is it's good stuff though i mean there's oh it's, it's absolutely great stuff um, yeah, I, recommend it,
1: I recommend it to everybody
0: yeah just watch out for your feet and your groin <laughs>
1: definitely do um and uh, and even vigiani while we're on the subject of the masters i know he intentionally veered away from what you could call the core the tradition um saying that uh, oh you people use uh, outlandish names for your guards and you know, he's a reformer. He was his own teacher. Um, so it's, it's, it's important to view him in that context, but it's also I think important not to ignore him entirely. He He existed in that place. He referenced the core tradition and he he has things to say about it. He has he has insights that we really don't get anywhere else on body mechanics, some mm-hmm. tactics, and I, I think it's important, even if now we don't actually approach his material um, at this point in time. He's he's a thing that we we will approach Vigiani um, someday you know, when I feel we've sufficiently expanded and explored what what you call the core, the core masters. Yeah. Um, So, Mancolino, Delegocchie, and Anonimo. At some point, it'll be a project of ours to to go through and say, here's what Vigiani said, here's what he did, and here's what it looks like, and here's how it's different. Uh, To me, that's more of a back burner project. Um, I think still, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, It's my intention. Um, it's my, my stated goal to practice and train and teach and record every play, every play of Morozo, every play of Menchilino, every one of Delgocchi, and really every one of Anonimo, believe it or not. Um, I've got the time, I've got the will, um, I've got the uh, great uh, backing of, of people I can work with, and we're, we're going to get it done simply because it, I think it, it, it needs to be done. And that's, in, you know, in my, in my opinion, in my of getting um, the best grasp, the best understanding, the best comprehension of their intention, of what they intended this stuff ought to
0: be. So let me rephrase the question. Let me rephrase it this way. Which of the four core masters do you see where... Um, Perhaps, do you feel most akin to in terms of how you um, sort of fence on your own? Like uh, when you're fencing, do you feel like you your style lends more to Morazzo or Dalagoke or the Anonimo? Um,
1: that's a pretty good question, and it's a, still not an easy question. Um, probably, um, I would draw from. Sort of channel Delegate simply because of his, uh, the way his mind seems to work. It's kind of the way my mind would seem to work, um, in the way of um, observation and judgment. And he seems very organized in the way he presents his material in sort of a if then scenario if you see this, this, then do that. Is my, my my mind tends to work along uh, those structures. Um, as far as who I, if I had to pick one, if, I, if, I, if you were to tell me, oh, you can only have one. I think I'd be forced to take Monozzo simply because of his the breadth of his material and the fact that I want to keep my hand in all of those different weapons. Yeah. And, um, I would. I would hate to just drop all of those things. I completely agree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mancholino te- teaches many of the same things in the same ways. And and people uh, have speculated that they even shared the same teacher. I, I have my, my reservations about saying that. Uh, I, I I see a lot of differences between them as well. I don't see just similarities. I'm really picking through them tightly. I see, I see differences. Um, but um, obviously, Mancholino's... Methodology of using a one-handed sword, accompanied, is is a bit thin. There's not very much there to form a system around. Well, also yeah. has, has uh, more in that regard. Even that, even even the two of them together, wouldn't satisfy really the need for creating an entire system around that one weapon.
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting, right? It's almost like the anonymous two-handed sword, where <laughs> you just have like maybe maybe Manchiolino lost his notes too, <laughs> because it's all from Porta de Ferro Strada, and that's kind of what right. we get with the anonymous's two-handed sword. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip ahead here because I think that you <laughs> like. More weapons. And that was a question that I was going to ask is what is your favorite weapon? But I don't, I, I have a feeling that you're going to tell me you don't have one. Um, I think you're
1: going to, yeah, I think you're going to get
0: So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead here. Uh, and
1: uh, let me just say one thing. Um, sure. my, my, my Japanese t- uh, teacher told me uh, years ago, he said, if anyone ever asks you what your, uh, your favorite weapon is, or your favorite technique is watch out. Because if you tell them you watch out because now that person can kill you.
0: Mm, that's, that's great advice. Yeah. I mean, well, it, you know, and that's, that's actually really fascinating from historical context too, from even, even in the Bolognese system, um, like Manchilino's advice on how to conduct a duel at the beginning, at the end of his introduction, um, you know, he gives a lot of advice about choosing weapons based on the height of a person, based on the strength of the person, um, based on what they prefer. Like, if you know that they prefer a specific weapon, then you go for something else, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, we even see that reflected, um, you know, here in, in the Bolognese uh, tradition. Perfect. So it's yeah. really, really fascinating.
1: My, my best answer is I would have to say that I, I don't have a preference because I don't, um, because I, I don't want to feel that there's uh, anything that I'm, equally good at. I want to feel that I'm equally good at all things. I don't want to have a, a favorite. I don't want to favor a weapon in the same sense that I, there's nothing that I dislike. you feel that I can pick up anything and, and use it. I can pick up anything and teach it um, because it's part of our style.
0: Yeah. So because you do have such a great depth of catalog, um, what are some of the challenges that you've faced developing your interpretations and, um, and, and from the treatises, and how have you overcome them?
1: Well, I think the biggest one
0: is understanding the
1: role of provocations in the art, Hmm. because they do make a big deal about saying, don't attack somebody who's an old guard um, with an attempt to wound, as Daligoke so eloquently puts that yes yeah. they all say it in their own way but there's a sort of an assumption after that that you have to watch out for so in the beginning of my own journey in these texts and it says that oh um, you should hit your in the you know strike your opponent with a mandrito to the head you know be careful about that because they just told you, don't attack somebody settled in a guard, with an attempt to wound. And here and now they say, well, okay, he's in this guard, hit him in the head with well, a to, Well, wait a minute, you just told me not to do that. We I mean, not to attack somebody. We in a settled guard, attack, and understanding really what they mean here is they're ta-
0: they're talking about provocations that's not always obvious. Um, yeah, and, and to that point, yeah, thinking about like Morazzo with his provocations, um, if you look at the sword and dagger material, two-handed sword material, when he actually does tell you to attack, most of the time, the the common theme for Morazzo, um, as he's telling you to attack throughout his treatise is to Essentially, throw a falso to the hand until they respond, and then you come in. But if you look at the rest of his material, most of the time it's this is how you defend a mandrito, this is how you defend a reverso, so how you defend a reverso to the leg. But his common theme that seems to exist throughout his system is is attacking with that falso to the hand.
1: Yeah, it's it's to draw out a response. It's not to draw blood. It's not to wound. Um, you know, if you look at uh, as like I mentioned in the beginning, that that really kind of slowed me down in the first few years i thought that i was supposed to be attacking the body of my opponent which puts me in a different position it puts me a lot more at risk and it seemed at odds with their their advice and uh, with things that i began to read as as i began to look at the entire system as i began to read everything that everybody wrote, this, this idea that we just um, charge in on somebody and attack them. That became, that began, began to, to be a problem and i it began to dawn on me. It began to unfold after a couple of, after the first couple of years. Well, we shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. that. Really, if you look at what they say to do, what they really say to do, they say only wait, and let your opponent be the first to attack. They do say that, uh, you know, if you don't want to be the first to attack, uh, if you don't want to be, to, or if you want to be the first to attack, we do. do? Um, we throw a provocation to draw out a response, a provocation to create an invitation. We throw out a, a provocation to expose something that we can strike or to get somebody to attack us. Uh, so even though we can at times be the first person to, to throw something, we can be the agent, we're still creating a situation in which we're making the other person be the first to commit to an, an earnest attack, an attack to wound. Uh, I find this to be very common. Um, in addition to that, we also use beats. mm mm-hmm. Instead of um, the case of us starting in some subtle guard, attacking somebody else in some other subtle guard with an intent to wound as the first thing that we do is an incredibly rare thing. You'd be hard pressed to find that. So letting this understanding guide you through these plays, I think is an important revelation to me and it's one I would say the the thing that's the most significant um, in my own development of my my interpretations because that understanding impacts everything measure timing targeting
0: yeah and and I think I so this this kind of ties into something that I had as a later question but I think it's it's important I think it's a good segue you know I think that provocations really do kind of develop the core of the tactical and strategic mindset of the Bolognese system. I think this is emphasized uh, in the Anonymous' general advice when he says, also you must know that if you find your enemy in a wide guard, then you will use your art to bring his sword into presence. If he has his sword in presence, then you must by means of fainting make him put his sword into a wide guard that allows you to control the line. You know i mean that could be through anything he says that can be done through feints or of course beating the sword and stuff like that um and then he, he concludes with such that this sword will point away from your person and off to the side of your body and you will then be able to perform whatever action you wish mm-hmm. um and then you know so like in our in the lead up to our conversation i was actually watching one of the videos of you doing uh jiu-jitsu um and um I I thought it was really interesting because there was one action that you were doing um, in the form that you were presenting and you gave the opponent the same, essentially like you attacked them the same way three times. I, you know, using Bolognese terms, you gave them a Mandarito three times, but then they respond to the mandrito and then you attack on the other side. Um, And I, I found that fascinating because there's this one, uh, this one verse in uh, mancilino that I've I've kind of been obsessing over lately, and it's uh, he he actually gives the exact same advice, um, and it, it's about conditioning your opponent, right? So, you know, there's so many different ways to provoke. You can provoke with tempo, with measure, um, but you know, provoking with conditioning your opponent to give them an action that you want, I think sometimes is something that we really miss out on. Um, And this one, I think, is really interesting. He says, if you're trying to make the opponent deliver an attack in order to strike him within the same tempo, you should yourself deliver the same attack three or four times in a row, almost as an invitation. It is common amongst fencers to ape one another. um, So your opponent will see himself compelled to eventually do the same to you. And in that moment, you'll perform the attack as planned. Yeah so there's there's so many of these interesting sort of similarities and things that really kind of flush out the system yeah
1: yeah um, that that he gave there as sort of general advice is explicitly detailed out in in several plays where where you will throw a, a falso to the hand do this two times yeah so the conditioning aspect um, is absolutely a, a tool that we can use and it's, it's, it's an interesting interesting tool. Um, in terms of our strategic and tactical approach, um, I would say to explore this idea that we have a defensive approach, um, that this is a, a defensive art. Uh, as they constantly said, wait, to make your opponent be the first to attack. How many times did they ever say that? Hundreds of times, yeah. seems like. Um, and when you um, when you don't wanna wait and you wanna be the first to, adva- uh, to attack, um, like I said, we don't normally uh, make an attempt to wound somebody, but we still attempt to draw out a response, even, even an, an attack from our opponent to where we'll, we'll throw a few cuts as provocations that um, may not even land, may not even be intended to land, but we place ourselves in a position of vulnerability, you know, Chinghiara, Porto de Ferro, or Porto de Ferro Larga, or some such, where we're still trying to get the other person to commit um, before we do. So I would say, um, and it it, it doesn't work so well, maybe in a, a sporting environment, because you don't really score a lot of points um, being defensive. Yeah. Look at this idea, approach it from the from what they said, is that well, we're really, we're doing a, a defensive part and you can see that through, throughout their writings.
0: Yeah, well, I, and I think that that's sort of the virtue of provocations, even something like conditioning. Um, is in a in a sporting setting if you do end up fighting because i mean there's there is advice for what to do if your opponent doesn't really want to engage and and oftentimes the time that you do have to be the first one to act is when your opponent doesn't want to engage Um, and so that's where provocations really become valuable is exactly. trying to, to get that person out of whatever defensive guard they're in you're trying to to yeah. move from their set position, just like the anonymous was saying, um, so that way you can sort of press in and, and sort of press right. the attack. Right. Where yeah, it, you,
1: yeah, you can't yeah. wait forever uh, if they're not going to attack. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, and and if they do come in, you know, they really come in hot at you, and they're like, "I'm going to hit this guy." Um, then we have such a breadth of defensive. <laughs> Techniques that we we you know you really can kind of pick and choose and, and decide right. which one really kind of fits the situation that you're in. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And I like the statement, um, and I I can't recall which uh, which author said it that um, it, it takes more skill to defend yourself to be to be skillful at defense skill than it than, than does offense.
0: Yeah, Gucci is that. Introduction. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, you can teach anybody to 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 attack, but to properly defend yourself takes more skill. Yeah. And so yeah, that does require, probably, you know, maybe the bulk, or, or maybe more, you know, more of a percentage of your time spent in, in being good at defense.
0: But it, it it's also you know I, I find it really interesting and, and quite amazing that. The very nature of provocations, um, no matter how you approach them, uh, if you're using uh, measure, or tempo, or um, you know changing guards, whatever you're doing to try to provoke your opponent to attack you, or even giving them a feint um, or conditioning, the, the mm-hmm. core concept of a provocation is you're creating a predictable response from your opponent. Exactly. If I if I know that you're in a specific guard, let's say you're in Cotalonga Stretta, and I thrust a Punta Reversa at you, you really only have a limited number of things that you can do uh, from that position. You have to set my sword right. offline. And then whatever right. attack you give, I know is yeah. predictable from there. And then I can yeah. go into my defensive set and that's right. where I gain the advantage. Right, so, because
1: it, yeah, it's, it's not wise uh, if you're the patient there. Just. Yeah, as you say, there's there's only a certain number of movements that are wise to make.
0: So, what what is something um, that you think that we as a uh, Bolognese community can do to improve upon the better and better reflect the sources um, in our fencing?
1: Um, I would say, uh, as I've already say, stated, with as many of them as you can, as fully as you uh, as you can, don't um, don't try to have favorites, but if you've not tried something, if you've never picked up a partisan, I would say pick up a partisan. If you've never picked up a poleaxe, if you've never done the dagger grappling plays of Morozo, I'd highly recommend that. I I really think, you know, I approach this as as a martial art. You know, I really want to know the minds of the people who wrote this stuff down when their, their lives depended on what they did. I want to know their minds. And um, to me, the, the dagger grappling material of Marozzo is quite an important bit of material. It reflects the times, it reflects their mindset. Um, and so I would say, if you've never done that before, definitely pick that up. If you've never done Buckler or uh, even Targa, Targa is a wonderful implement. And just because you've done the Buckler material, don't assume that you know the Targa. They are actually not identical. Um, so Targa is actually a, a load of fun and, and should be studied. Uh, I would say pick something that you've never done and work it. Um, don't let uh, any sort of previous experience be a, a roadblock uh, to exploring all that the Bolognese system has to offer. Um, and one more thing I would say is, don't rush to form an interpretation or an opinion. These te- these things take time. Don't sit down on a on a weekend and hammer out um, all of your opinions and then and stick to them. Be flexible, and understand that your your understanding of these things takes time. We don't have teachers. Uh, as as we did in Japanese or Chinese or or some other form of martial art, we don't have a direct lineage um, of people who have had this stuff transmitted to them back from the day when they used it for real. We have a broken lineage. And so for us, it is going to take longer. It is going to be frustrating. It is going to feel like um, we are attempting to, hobble together this this thing, um, and we will encounter difficulties, and um, it's important for us to be patient and not to insist that we have an answer right now for all these questions. I think that in time, we will arrive at very satisfactory answers to the questions of what does this stuff look like? You know, it's one thing to read a translation, and our translators do a great job at, at um, presenting their words to us, but what something looks like on paper in a book as a translation, um, that really doesn't tell you what it looks like in in action, in person. To have something written on paper, that's, there's still this question, well, what does it really look like? You know, I, I see it here, but what, what is it when you do it? And so I think we will eventually arrive very satisfactory answers to that. Um, But it's not going to be a quick process and we need to. We need to um, accept that and be prepared for that and not, as I say, um, rush to our interpretations and and cling to them um, and work with each other. Um, I'm got my interpretations. But I'll be the first to tell you, I'm ready to modify them at the drop of a hat. If I come across information in a section of a book of a Bolognese master that I haven't read before and it contradicts what I thought, I created an interpretation, I will rework my interpretation. I am definitely not set in stone um, with what I think about this stuff. I do... Um, have a, I, have a, I have a pretty good setup and I have a pretty good system and I have these things organized and, and recorded very uh, very thoroughly and described in a lot of detail, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, I'm unwilling to modify them, especially in light of new information, especially when it comes from a Bolognese source.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's amazing advice. Um I love that because, you know, I, I think that one of the cores of martial arts in general doesn't matter, you know, where it comes from, is always being willing to learn and to listen. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like that when you stop listening and you stop trying to learn and you get conceited and you feel like, you know, all the answers is when, you know, things pass you by or, you know, you you end up running into somebody who, who really has um, you know put the time in and and that's the biggest thing too and and of course you know you you have that that gift that you have that time and and that's why you're such a valuable resource and the fact that you're willing to share that with us for free um is amazing but um if anybody is interested in signing up for ken's uh patreon look up the st louis school of arms on patreon um and support him because it is important for us to keep uh, people like ken going so um thank you. with that ken i am of course um i'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up um i just want to say thank you so much uh for coming on and um i look forward to hopefully getting an opportunity to see you again um and training with you
1: sure thank you very much our doors doors are always open and we uh, we like visitors and we uh, uh we like to, to have a good time and, and meet new friends all
0: right well, ken thank you so much thank you and that concludes Le the bolognese podcast i'd like to thank our guest ken harding again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us Next week, we're going to be interviewing Stephen Frattis, the translator of The Anonymous Bolognese, with Malice and Cunning, Anonymous 16th Century Manuscript on Bolognese Swordsmanship. So please tune in, and don't forget to like and subscribe.